0: You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Buds. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this week we are doing an indie talk, and that means I have my good friend and co-founder with me, the uh, exuberant, luxurious, uh, magnificent, uh, sultry, Nicholas Bugs. (laughs) Nick, say hello. I have no idea... Well, I was trying to say what adjectives would come to my mind as I described you, uh, and those were the ones that came up. So, congratulations!
1: Wow, yeah, I would I would say that you are uh, ridiculously adjectivious today, my friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do appreciate the um, the verbal accolades. You know, I I appreciate that. So, yeah, what's up, folks? It's always good to be uh, on the horn with Chrissy B.
0: Yeah. Who, by the way, is a sweltering oak of a man. (laughs) Sweltering. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, sound effects in the background. Uh, My my apologies. Well, you know, it's interesting. This week we are all going back outside and and reacquainting ourselves with friends and family and the world. Slowly but surely plans are in place. We want to be careful. We don't want to be arrogant about coming back out into the world. I think that's people's general consensus. Uh, obviously we have our own, uh, but it's probably not far away from that. You know, the last thing you want to do is, is go out, get, get contracted by being foolish. This COVID-19 madness, and then bring it back and affect other people. So Uh, But it it is you are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel and um, it feels like normal life again. And now is a good time to sort of reflect on what has really been the sort of twilight zone that we've been in for the last three months. Like we're actually approaching summer right now. And that is hard to believe um, for sure. And so as we reflect on what this last three months has meant for, uh, independent film and for film in general, when we look at the winners and the losers, uh, in this, if you will, I think the clear cut winners, uh, are, um, the streaming platforms. And that's probably no surprise with the clear cut losers being big box theaters and potentially, uh, filmmakers who had films ready to be purchased or ready to be exploited. Um, and with that being the spirit, uh, we we did uh, notice that this week there were lots of sort of resources popping out of everywhere and different ideas and acquisitions and things. that Things are moving quickly right now in the business as we start to roll back out into some sense of normalcy. And I think we'll see some news come out. But um, we have resources galore this episode, Nick, don't we?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure, man. I think that that's that's basically what we're about. I think we're always digging into to new things that we learn about in the in the industry of filmmaking. And, you know, when we find these things, we're like, okay, how does that affect the indie filmmaker? You know, because I think there's a lot of talk, you know, about, you know, you and I had conversations earlier just about, you know, some of these films that are coming out. What is this like the, the theater, you know, get it early as if you just got it in a theater and they're charging 25 bucks you know, for the film. And, you know, it's all about the latest thing like the box office What digital entertainment group has their, you know, watched at home top 20 and it's basically monopolized by universal and, and Disney and Sony and Warner brothers, you know, so it's a lot of this stuff that's happening. There's still a lot of conversation about the, you know, what the major studios are doing and major distributors are doing. And, you know, you and I always bring it back and say, well, okay, we hear that and we get it, but, what does that mean for the
0: indie filmmaker? Yeah, for sure. And I, it's it's tough because the indie filmmaker can't just turn around a project really quickly or get in, get into development really quickly. Uh, if that were the case, I'd say everybody run to HBO Max, you know, right now, because right. Um, they're about half the subscriber count of, of Showtime and they're, they're anxious to catch up. Uh, I think a lot of that disparity between their subscriber count has to do with the fact that Showtime's just cheaper. I mean, some could argue the content is equal or better. I would say it's, that's arguable. Maybe not the case. But that the service itself is significantly cheaper. And so, with HBO Max, they're looking to hit a new target at the same price point, And they're really looking for great content. I mean, they, uh, their rates, they, the, what they're paying uh, for original content is above market price, And that's my understanding. And they're allowing their filmmakers to keep international rights, which is, um, it means that you have as a creator, a future runway for revenues, um, that you can control. And that's just not something that happens in the world of content creation and in the world of film. Um, and so, but the, but the issue is again. As an independent filmmaker, can you, or or creative, can you turn around content that would be HBO Max worthy? Can you get that funding? Do you have those people around? So instead we look to places like YouTube which is sort of an endless, um, a bottomless pit of discovery and content. And I think most people understand YouTube uh, by now, but, but it, it, it's fascinating because you cannot wrap your mind around the amount of content that gets published and submitted to YouTube daily. Um, one report that I read was that there is more content submitted to YouTube per day than one individual could watch in their entire lifetime if all they did was watch videos. Um and that's per day. So um what what's curated for you is what is what's curated for you by their algorithm but what's actually being submitted is literally anything and everything and it would it, uh, it's like trying to imagine the infinite universe when you think about it. Um so it can really overwhelm you. So that's what we're here for, to curate some things for you. It's some discoveries we made this week. Nick, you found three wonderful discoveries on YouTube, but uh, to tell the folks about it.
1: Yeah. Well, actually this week, my uh, older brother was sending me a couple of uh, short films and I noticed that, you know, so he's into sci-fi, he's into horror films and uh, it was a bunch of sci-fi shorts. And the one thing that, well, there's two things that I noticed. Uh, so first was, the high quality of the shorts that I watched. I was like, wow. I mean, these, these things are really well done. You know, sci-fi isn't an easy genre for independent filmmakers to, to jump into because of the requirements on one, just skill to, to put things uh, down, put things together, especially when using, you know, all sorts of visual effects or CGI, um, computer, generated graphics uh, but there's just a high cost to some of the the tools that you need to put those things together or even the the team that you need to make it all work so it's just it's not a place where you can envision a lot of indie filmmakers going uh, but there are a lot of indie filmmakers in that space and where they cannot produce uh, feature length films they're producing shorts and mm-hmm. uh, the other thing that i noticed was they're all coming from the same youtube account Right, so it's not all the same person, but it's the same YouTube account. And this this one that he was sending me was called Dust, and uh, you know they have a website, watchdustfilms.com. So I was looking at this, and yeah, I'm looking like like each one of these things is is pretty amazing. You know, if you watch the little trailers, or if you just watch. Um, you just kind of even look at just the screenshots, the screen grabs of this, and you're like whoa, I mean look at the graphics on the face of that creature, or you know that's a really cool shape, you know spaceship design, and all these things that they're they're doing, I'm like this is really high quality stuff, so I'm looking through these videos I'm looking at the number of uh, views, and I see this, on, like right now, this one film, you know, posted two years ago, has 6 million views, another one posted a year ago has 10 million views, and Dust has 1.73 million and subscribers. So as I'm looking at this, I'm like, look, you know, so many people like seem, filmmakers seem like they don't have uh, anything to do with their shorts. As in, where does it go from here? I've made it, I posted it to my YouTube channel, or I told my friends about it, or I submitted it to a film festival, made it, maybe it made it, maybe it didn't. Uh, but I'm looking at this and I'm like, look, you have people that are curating content, right? So I'm sure that dust, you can, you know, you can submit your films to them and they're going to review this stuff for themselves. You know they're not going to put every sci-fi film that they receive on here. Mm-hmm. They're going to make sure that it actually fits their brand, right? Because they, you know, they need to make sure that their um, their audience knows what to expect, right? You know, when C- they come cu- there,
0: curated pages very similar to what uh, Fivefold's creative has, which which uh, Tim uh, Dugan um, helps run. Um, Oh, that was our make it guess from last week, if you guys recall. So um, if you go to that site, for example, five Folds creative, you'll see that everything seems extremely curated. And um, the end result is that the subscribers are never misled. That's right, and they're never dissatisfied based on the expectations
1: they have of the brand. So the subscribership it, it, at a minimum will be maintained as long as they're providing content. And then, you know, what you really want is that subscribership to grow. So, you know, Dust, having been on YouTube since 2016, has now amassed 1.73 million subscribers. It's amazing, right? So there's a that's the sci-fi. There's another one that does uh, horror short films, and that's Alter. Uh, and they've got 1.12 million uh, f- subscribers. And then the other one we were talking about was, um, I think it was the future shorts, Yeah, future shorts, right. And they've got 500,000. Um, so one of the cool things that I was, I was telling you earlier, Chris, I was, it was just funny to me. Uh, you know, this guy actually posted a comment to, uh, to one of the films on dust and he says, my wife sat down next to me as I was flipping channels. She asked what's on TV. He responds, dust, <laughs> right? And I, and I told Chris, I was like, that's so cool because the double entendre are used there, right? You got this, you know, one, what's on TV? Well, he's watching dust. Like that is, that's where he's watching film. Just like my older brother. He hasn't sent me anything on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu. He's sending me these videos that he's seeing on dust. So that's what's on TV. And I said, the double entendre is that what's on his actual TV? Dust, because he's not using it. Right. You know, right. he, he doesn't <laughs> need it, you know, of course, unless he's watching his YouTube on TV. But beside the point, um, you know, I think it's really cool that there's all of this content and these things are it's not like, you know, a thousand views. You know, they're getting millions of views or hundreds of thousands of views for shorts. So, you know, there's a way to get your content out there to not only your audience, but if your stuff is up to par, right? Up to the level that Dust wants or that future shorts or alters wants, then you have access to their curated community as well. And if you're prepared for it, you know, you can leverage that community. If they like your stuff, they're gonna come looking for you. Yes. Right? They're gonna check out your other YouTube channel if you have one. They're gonna come check out your website. They'll look at look you up online. And if you're ready to receive them then you can leverage them for, you know, potentially a crowdfunding campaign or maybe you're, you know, you're a creator and you've got your stuff out there where, you know, people can you know finance your work through other means, but there's a, there's a curated audience right there and it's a great way to get your content out to them.
0: Yeah. And I think if you're an independent filmmaker, you have to be pretty darn excited about Alter, right? So here's, you're, you're always looking for a scale play, meaning, uh, one thing that you do that touches a maximum amount of people, um, um, or the number you need, the number of people you need to, to uh, you know, uh, sort of engage with your content in order for it to be profitable for you to continue forward. And so here's Alter that has 1.12 million subscribers and they're looking for horror content. So if you're, uh one of these teams out there that makes horror films and, and there's a ton of them in independent film of course because it's the 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 I guess not the, I don't want to say the easiest genre, cause that's totally not true. It's the genre in which you don't need a name. And it's the one that you have the best chance of, of sort of hitting a home run with or, or catching that Hail Mary, if you, if you will. Uh, so you see a lot of horror films come out of, of indie. So imagine a world like this, Nick, where you, where you submit to alter alter takes your film, uh, 10 to 20% of their audience see the film. Then you take those people and go to uh, shortmovie.club. So this is a website where you can crowdfund just to get your short films made. Um, so you can actually make, you can make your sort of crowdfunding attempt on any platform. It can be Indiegogo or a Scene spark or Kickstarter or whatever. But then you can take it and give it to this community that only cares about short films and supporting short films. They work with uh, Fest Home and Film Freeway, and it's shortmovie.club. And so then you could raise money either for your next short or your feature film, and it's just all based on submitting it to Alter. Now, I hear, I can kind of, I can sense that the audience is saying, well, Chris, why wouldn't we just do that in reverse? You certainly can uh, but it will keep the cycle going, right? You could go into shortmovie.club and raise the money first, then make your film, and then put it on Altar. But then you, because it's on Altar, you probably would have the runway to do it again. Right.
1: And I think that that's the idea is that you have a curated audience there on Altar. So, again, if you were able to make it past the gate You know, they were able, the gatekeeper said, yeah, you are ultra worthy. You're dust worthy. You're whatever worthy. Then, you know, that's, that's huge because you've now been invited into their audience and you can leverage that audience on. I guess he's like a chicken of the egg type thing, like you were just mentioning, but you could leverage that audience when you go to shortfilm.club or you go to um, Indiegogo or anywhere else. So it's just, it's a great avenue to get your stuff out there and you're leveraging your short film work to do the marketing for you. Right. And I think this is what we always say to independent filmmakers it's like, you know, there's definitely different ways to not just monetize, but leverage the work that you're creating. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's what you have to think about. It's like, like, stop thinking about the one feature film that's going to take you the next two years of your life to try to create. And then the next 10, 15, 20 years of your life to, to monetize. I mean, look at all the stuff that you can create that's six minutes long, 12 minutes long, 24 minutes long, and see how you can even 30 seconds long. That you can leverage to build a community, to build an audience who will fund the next thing that you're doing. And, you know, outside of that, I was, you know, telling you, Chris, I was like, the cool thing about short films that I think a lot of people don't realize uh, is that, okay, so right now I've got Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, all that stuff. And I've got a watch list on all of these different things. And, you know, there's those watch lists have been sitting around for a minute. Right. There's films yeah. on there that have probably been on there for a year that I just haven't, you know, that I just haven't <laughs> had. You should, you should had see to my
0: time. Netflix list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. I'm, I'm giving like, up on it. I, I, exactly.
1: Yeah. It's like, what are, we, what are we doing? But and we and we recommend films to each other, right? Like, hey, yeah. Chris, go watch this. You'll recommend something to me. We'll put it on the watch list. Great. Right. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to watch it when I have time. But I'll tell you what, my older brother sends me these shorts. Man, I look at these things. I'm like, it's nine minutes. I can give up nine minutes, right? Yeah. I can give up 13 minutes. Like, I, I can commit to that. And that's the difference. Like, I can watch 15 or 20 of these things and still potentially spend the same amount of time I might have spent watching two or three feature films. But because I'm getting them in smaller bites, I'm more willing to watch that content, and if I really like it, you can pretty much guarantee I'm going to go back and look for that artist again and find out where else I can watch their stuff, and I might go through all the altar stuff and see what else I can find from that person. I might look them up on IMDb, but if you like it enough, you're going to end up looking for that person and potentially following them, and if given the opportunity to support them, hey, why not? That's what the
0: crowdfunding business is all about. Right. That, that is correct. And I, I want to mention one thing before I forget, before we move on, move on to the next topic, um, and it's what you said about um, just being on the TV screen. If, you know, people are still watching it on TV, and I, it made me think about uh, something we've said many times before, but just as a reminder um, to be ahead of the game, you need to really watch how, uh, 10 to 22 year olds, let's say are consuming content. Like how do they watch it? Where do they see most of their stuff? How are they getting it? And then start thinking about how to create content that fits those mediums. I have personally found that the the trouble is sort of in that middle-sized TV space, right? Like the death of the 42 inch TV is right around the corner. <laughs> um, because yeah. I, I found these kids love a theater space. Like that feels great. Like in a home, like a home theater, yep. but then not as fond of the spaces in between. It would rather watch on their phone, their iPad, or even their own computer in their own bedroom. So I just wonder how that, you know, is that a, is that a privacy thing? Cause they're a kid. Is that uh, is this the new world order uh, for when it comes to content? Is this something that will change when they become an adult and have kids of their own? Um, you know, we're already seeing uh, there being. You know, I don't I don't know how the family would look in twenty years. Like, be uh, maybe one kid, <laughs> maybe no spouse uh, potentially, um, and not that there's any, there's nothing wrong. I'm not being a get off my lawn guy. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying it's changing. And I think that as independent filmmakers, if we're being smart, we're looking at how content's being created and we are, um, adjusting accordingly so that we're not left holding the bag. Like we were, for example, when Netflix started making their own content, we needed to see, okay, our movies have to be released sooner now. Uh, We have a very short window to sell because everyone's going to follow. It's a a copycat business. And sure enough, every other major streaming company started making original content, which, you know, by proxy boxed out independent filmmakers. We talked about this about five or six indie talks ago about how there are people or filmmakers in, in the UK that have beautiful multi-million dollar independent films and literally nowhere to put them. Uh they are not selling. And so they're completely upside down in their investment when just 2 years prior to let's say Netflix deciding to create their own content, those those would have sold for a pretty penny and um those filmmakers would have been okay. So remember, keep a keep an eye on what the kids are doing and that'll tell you uh how you need to make your content because for example, making something for Quibi is as simple, I'm I'm seeing that sometimes it's a matter of let's, let's, let's frame and crop what we shot into, um, a portrait style for your phone. Well, uh, or even landscape, but for a phone and that the result is usually quite shitty. Nick, um, Mm -hmm. So what I've seen cinematographers and I've, I've read now that cinematographers are doing is they're actually measuring out the, the most common screen size, uh, which is like an iPhone, let's say, and then just putting tape around the outside of the lens and shooting so they can actually see and get the shot within those confines, which I think is really interesting yeah, well, it's a it's a better way to shoot, you know, than trying to cut it later. Because, like you said, like
1: you're trying to cut it down. It was never intended to be that way. Right. right. You will lose something if you take it from what it was supposed to be and then cram it into something else. So, you know, that's definitely a
0: better way to shoot if you want to get the shot that you want people to see. Yeah, I, it's going to be fascinating to see the improvement in content that is designed for phones in the next year. Because right now, again, it's like. Uh, I don't think this was meant for that, <laughs> but, but it won't always be that way. So be ahead of the game, figure out a way to make that content look like it was meant for that, that viewing, um, uh, platform. Uh, and, and then, you know, of course, Nick, to do that, you have to first let go of the dream. You have to let go of the the fairy tale that we tell ourselves as creatives, which is we want our thing to play on the silver screen. <laughs> we want yeah. we want our film to be on the biggest screen with the biggest speakers, and everyone's laughing and eating their popcorn and drinking their coke and getting diabetes. We, <laughs> we want that, and and once we realize the world is is for the most part changed, which, uh, it might be a nice segue to our next topic, then, then yep. we'll be good. Uh, any thoughts on that before I step us into the, uh, through the next door, the next dimension? No, I, I, no but I think uh, I'll just say this. So
1: as you step through the door, I think that's what we're asking the filmmaking community to do is like, stop sitting where you are. Right, If you're sitting in the what the early 90s envisioning your independent feature film being you know the, the next big thing on the silver screen or the, what the early or mid mid2000s, I guess it is when you could sell your stuff for a couple million dollars to Netflix, like y- you can't sit there. The industry and technology and viewers, they're moving. Right. They're moving through the doors. They're going into the next dimension. I think that's the invitation that we're providing to the indie filmmakers. Like, y'all need to move, man. (laughs) You know, follow, follow the trends, keep moving. Cause if you, it basically continues to get worse for the independent filmmakers who
0: stay where they are. Yeah, correct. Because the business models are not designed to help us out at all. Uh, They're designed to, break our hearts and break us down and, <laughs> and we can, and we can, we can, uh, uh, but what's interesting, not necessarily designed with intention that way, but, but certainly the monsters are behind the doors. Um, and you have to have your sword and your intellect ready. Um, and so we, we, we talked about, uh, who are going to be the big winners and losers coming out of COVID-19 and, the safer at home period. And, um, Amazon seems to be making some pretty heavy moves here. Uh, Amazon wants to be a player, Nick, and the first thing they did was they they partnered with South by Southwest and some other film festivals to uh, basically, screen, basically screen the films that would have been in those festivals for free on Amazon's platform. Uh, and I think that went through May 6th. I don't think you can see them anymore. But Uh, a lot of filmmakers said, no, we'll just wait till next year. And I'm wondering, Nick, is that because it's only a win for the festival and Amazon and not a very good win for the filmmaker? Or is that, again, because as filmmakers, we hold on to the experience um, desire, the fantasy we have of, I'm going to do a festival run. I'm going to sell out theaters. People are going to see my film, screen it, Right, and and then I'll have a sales opportunity after that. What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think it's
0: all of the above,
1: uh, but I think it also has to do with captivated audience. You know, the challenge you're going to have by putting your stuff on Amazon and then watching it through that is that you know all those people didn't necessarily buy tickets to that online film festival. You're making it available to people while they're com- while you're competing with their time and their effort and their energies right? Like if you go to a film festival, like you you went there, (laughs) you know, you're you're there, you know, you went there for that purpose. And if you choose to buy the ticket for that film, then that means something. And I know which film that you watched and I know that you bought it and you wanted to watch it again and you told people about it. And there's a whole, you know, so yeah, all the experience, but I think the other part of it is that they're, they're captive. They're there for you and for no other purpose. Whereas streaming it on Amazon with, you know, the, 20,000, 20 million other things that you could watch in passing. It's just not a, like an active experience that the filmmakers and the, even the, the audience would get from that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I'm the one I think that will always preach. If I'm preaching, I will <laughs> preach uh, patience to filmmakers. Um, it's not always the best medicine, right? Like I just mentioned a, a, a time in, uh, our lifetimes with Netflix where speeding up would have helped. Right. But in general, um, um, we think that the world knows, uh, about our film and about our project and about who we are and about our work. And the reality is very few know about it. And so the world, almost every person in the world is a new customer. And so if it were me, I would, if I had a short film, I would screen it on Amazon. But if I had a feature, I would go ahead and wait to all this past and I would enter different festivals and do my festival run. And I think there's a lot of value around the experience of having a festival run, like learning to do it has value. And like you said, the audience that comes is engaged. You're not passively watching your film on a TV while the kids are screaming and uh, -and so-and-so is making pancakes. Like it's not, it's, it's, it's an ideal environment by which to have your art Consumed. That's right. Yeah. So I think yeah, like you said, the the waiting is also part of that game because
1: I think there's a certain level of confidence that folks have, you know, in that you know things may never be normal again, but they'll get back to some level of normalcy that um, will at least enable them to get back to like a, some sort of formal film festival type circuit. And then the other thing I think when you're when you're looking at you know amazon and and these other streamers and how they're uh, working with uh, filmmakers and festivals specifically i think a lot of filmmakers also do realize that that's a test right so the question is is that do you want to be involved in the test You know, or do you want to be involved? Well, no, we'll wait and you test that on something else. And if that works, okay, (laughs) then we'll engage, right? Right. But I think part of it, it's not absolute that people want to consume stuff there. And I think even the film festival goers are also the ones who are probably like, nah, that's not the experience that I want. You know, that's that... That wasn't why I was going. I wasn't going just to watch it on my screen, right? That's not what it was. I wanted a theatrical experience. I wanted to be part of the community. It's got to be bigger than that. So even Panels. if it is online, yeah. so even if it is online, it has to be bigger than that. Yeah. right It has a feel bigger than that and once they figure that out then yeah maybe it could be done virtually but but not not the way that the early testing was
0: being done. Yeah I think the closest we've come to it online is what Apple used to do with the um, music festival out in London. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it but but I would watch that. They would have they'd have a lineup. It should, they'd have a calendar and you'd see which artist was going to perform every day. And it was really awesome. It was kind of like going to a festival in your house and you would just leave it on there. And, um, there was an app for it. You just leave it on there and, and let it play. And, um, that's the closest I've ever been to, um, outside of being on some like periscope experiences, um, to, to actually feeling like I was at a festival of any kind without actually being at the festival. Um, and, and I think when you look at Amazon, uh, partnering with festivals, and and then rumored to be in, uh, involved in the purchase potential acquisition of AMC theaters, uh, you realize their main leverage point is cash. That's what Amazon has. You know, Amazon has about twenty seven billion dollars on hand uh, in just cash. And the way our economy and the way our stock market and the way our corporations are set up, it's not necessarily a great thing to have a lot of cash on hand. And that's why you'll see a lot of stock buybacks or corporations finding ways, creative ways to spend the cash so that it's not on hand um, when it comes to tax season. Um, But Amazon's clearly missing something that other streamers aren't missing, right? Um, So, for example, if we go through all the streamers that are the big ones. Netflix's flagship show is Stranger Things. Stranger Things is still going. Uh, its stars are growing in popularity. Uh, it has a season coming up. Um, it's it's an it's a ongoing thing, right? When you look at Hulu, they have The Handmaid's Tale. That's a great show, objectively great show, still going. Um, when you look at... Um, Showtime, they've got billions. Stars has power. Apple TV Plus has the morning show. Disney Plus has The Mandalorian. Um, So on and so forth. But what Amazon has is Fleabag, which is a brilliant show, but it's over. So where do they go from here? They have all this content, a ton of content. They've got 150 million subscribers, which is second only to Netflix. And yet the content is kind of, um, they're just not known for it. They have the worst interface. It's, it's close between Amazon and Hulu, the worst inter- interface for consuming content, first of all. And then it's like, what are our flagship movies? What are our flagship shows? How are we going to grow in this area and become a legitimate player? And I think them buying AMC or are pursuing that potentially as part of that AMC has the most debt of any of the theater chains at about $10 billion in debt. So that's, that's a, a little bit more than, than Regal and a lot more than Sinmark, which are the top three uh, theaters in the United States. And you look at it and the idea is, okay, if, if I'm Amazon and I buy uh, AMC, then I can actually negotiate the purchase of the films that I screen for Amazon Prime. Because the thing about Amazon Prime is nothing feels exclusive to them except for their original content, which only really Fleabag and The Marvelous uh, Maisel has taken off in, in a significant way. I mean, there's other shows, but those are the ones, right? So, imagine a world where, you know, so every year, and I think most people might not know this, but each year big box theaters get with studios for a week and they negotiate which movies are going to buy for the upcoming year. And that's how big box theaters are able to report out to wall street, report to shareholders and project revenues. That's where they also decide what the splits are. We assume that it's 50-50. It's not always 50-50. Sometimes it's 40-60. Sometimes it's 52-48. But the studios and the big box theaters have had this type of negotiation and relationship since the 1940s or 50s. So anyway, now imagine Amazon comes to the table, Nick, and suddenly they're saying, okay, well, we're going to run your this movie that you have coming out in the summer. We'll run it for eight weeks. But then at the end of the eight weeks, we will also add layer on this amount of cash to purchase it and have exclusive rights to it. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, as we get into this conversation about Amazon
1: and the behemoth that it is, you know, I just imagine, yeah, they can purchase the content um, and show it in, let's say, like you said, a theater, right? They've purchased a theater and now they, they own it. So, it's an Amazon instead of AMC theater, um, you know, but I take it a little bit, a little bit further and... You know, I think about the fact that, you know, Amazon is not going to want to stop there. They're going to want to expand, but there's only so many theaters to expand into, you know, that Mm -hmm. physical space. Right. And, you know, I think about it, I was like, there's going to be so much, you could call it real estate, um, available, over the coming months and the coming years because of uh, retailers, restaurants, other places actually going out of business. Uh, One, partially because of um, COVID-19 and some of the burden that's placed on them. Uh, But also, you know, I don't I actually, believe that they're making many indoor malls anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ones that still exist, they're going to be emptying out. And you know what I can imagine when Amazon becomes a greater monopoly in the space of uh, producing or purchasing and then distributing content and then getting to the theater space. I can literally imagine Amazon buying up all of that real estate in these malls, uh, maybe even taking the malls over 100% where you can go in there and that's shared Amazon space. You can have your Amazon locker there. You can get it's an Amazon distribution center there. And then inside that mall there's 10 Amazon theaters. and the, these things are open 24 hours a day. and you can rent them out to watch your film. And you can have a selection of films, right? Forget saying, oh, we're going to now get this one out in July and this one will come out in August and we'll do all this. No, it's not even just going to be about uh, a film and its timing. It'll also be about a film, its timing and the demographics of the theater goers, right? I mean, you can, the data that they have available to them, whether it's Amazon or Netflix or any other behemoth right now, they can just tell you this city right Or this county or th- yeah, this town likes this content. Mm-hmm. right? So we're gonna make sure that we go live with that new film in these 27 counties across America, but we're not going to show it anywhere else. So this isn't a you know an arrangement with AMC Global. This is local shops. And then you know, imagine that. you can rent for two hours your own little mini theater. And, you know, as we've seen lately, uh, they've taught drones to clean, right? So Mm -hmm. now you just get your drones who come in, disinfect the whole room, and then when your film is done, then the next family or couple or individual is waiting outside, ready to come in to have their own personal and private theatrical experience based off of content that Amazon has either produced or procured, and then gotten you to pay for through a theatrical means as well. So just
0: this may just be your prime membership. I, exactly. Um, I, what you just said reminds me of, have you seen the new Jerry Seinfeld stand up yet on Netflix? Nope, I haven't. Uh, I give it a, a B plus to an A minus. It's, it's pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, but he has a joke that says there's, there's a, there's a deal we have with the theaters, which is that I know you're ripping me off <laughs> for concessions yep. and the ticket price. And therefore, when I'm done with my food, my hand opens. (laughs) It's like, don't ask me to pay this and then also clean up the theater. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, yep. go in. Bring your yeah. So bring your drones in. Clean it up. We're not cleaning it up. We already know we we pay twelve dollars for a bag of popcorn. That's like, right. Yeah. Like we're it, we're not doing both. So, um. But but I love what your where your head is on that because I think it's exactly the point, which is that we are the customers or not the customers. We are the product. Sorry, um, not the customers. Um. When you look at what Amazon does in their e com business, uh, with uh sort of advertising, and then understanding the data they could get. So you use your Prime account to purchase everything. Now, all of a sudden, they know what Nick likes to eat, uh, like what snacks he likes. They know what drinks he likes, what kind of movies he likes. Um, If it's an Amazon mall, like you said, they know what kind of purchases he likes to make, uh, maybe that are outside of theatrical. Uh, But now those targeted ads are going to be really, really on on point. And um, as I've told you before, Nick, the holy grail with advertising is just trying to figure out what someone's going to do next before they even think to do it themselves and then sell to that desire. So there's a lot of plays for Amazon on this. And um, we will see what happens because there could be other players involved too that are cash heavy that came out uh, as big winners in COVID-19. Um, We started last week with a new uh, segment, and we might just keep layering in segments. We'll see. But this new segment called Be Better, Be Creative, Be Engaged, which is our motto, something we live by or try to live by uh, each day and and ask uh, our audience to do as well. And and we pick one filmmaker, one idea, one product, one film itself, uh, anything in our world that we think. Uh, sort of meets that criteria and we have a few things today uh, one the first thing and the main thing here is uh, the, the film First Cow which is uh, by Kelly Reichert and um, really enjoyed this film I guess technically it came out last year but I think it only screened early this year um, and I think she's a great example of um of how to make a film where you are and, uh, which is one of our first principles. We first heard that from, uh, Ryan Hartsock as well. And that's, that's something he believes in, um, you know, uh, produce where you are. And so all these films that have been made, uh, are, um, made in Oregon. Uh, I don't know, Nick, did you ever find out the budget on this? No, it's not listed. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't find it. Yeah. So, um, I, I wish we did have it. That would be, that would be great, but, uh, I don't, I don't want anybody to see this film and say, okay, great. I see that they made a movie that was, uh, $50 million. Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Nick. Uh, uh, (laughs) you didn't help us out here, but I, I don't think these films cost like that much, but like I said, she produces where she is. They're all in Oregon. They're all beautiful. Um, first cow is great. It's based on a, on a Jonathan, uh, Raymond novel. Uh, so there's another thing that, um, you know, as an indie filmmaker, you can do, which is to take a property you love and then get the rights to it and start, start writing it and making it. And, um, I just, I, uh, I celebrate, uh, Kelly and I would say go out and enjoy that whole filmography uh with the latest being First Cow, uh which is a history piece at that and uh I think I'll I'll always love those those time pieces where uh, set design is so important and getting the language right is so important and getting the look right and the clothes, right. And so I, I know that, uh, our audience loves those things too. Uh, it really involves the whole cast and crew to really, uh, be creative and make sure you nail this, this historic point, Nick. Yeah. And I think the one thing that, Stood
1: out, uh, you know, in this film, especially as you look as, at the, the cast and crew, you know, the, there are some relatively recognizable faces in here who've done some great things on other projects, but, you know, it doesn't have, you know, the the star talent, right? Like as in the big box stars that you, you know, you'd see in some other films. It's, it's not like chock full of that, uh, but this film did go to a number of the top film festivals, Mm-hmm. You know, this, this film is no slouch, right? And I think as an as an artist, as a writer and a director, you know, I, I think she's, you know, very well known for the work that she's done and is able to um, get into some of these things. But, you know, as you say all the time, it's, you know, story is king. And, you know, that's what I think it all comes down to is if you can have a, a great story. You can do the work to, you know, make sure you meet the period or, or meet the the location, uh, the time period or the like I said, the location that the, the film is about. If you can do the work there to make it look good, to make it sound good. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need the top build cast. You know, right. you don't need your top ten actors and actresses. That's not that's not what's gonna carry this thing and get it into these
0: festivals. Um, And I think that's what you saw in this film when you, when you watched it. Well, and that's the thing I want to get across too. It's like, I I want to be fair to the audience. Like she, she's not like an indie filmmaker in the sense that, that um, she hasn't got access to, to resources. She's, she has access to, to resource. She can make these movies. And so that might be a differentiating point. I mean, the first movie I ever saw of hers was a movie called night moves, um, and that had big names in it, right? Like, so I just want to be clear. Like, I know it's different, but, but the point that Nick is making, and the, I guess the point I'm trying to make is with the movie First Cow, you might notice some faces and names, but they're not like, it's not like it's, it's, it's over the top where it's untouchable for an independent filmmaker to do it. The point of this is, is that she found a great novel and then wrote a great screenplay. And then on top of that, found not name talent, but talent. Yeah. <laughs> people who could actually act the parts and live the parts and look the parts and be them. And therefore she got into all these incredible festivals, did really well and got picked up by a 24. So, um, that's, that's the story we're trying to tell here, which is go find the right person for your but not your best friend, not your cousin who wants to act, go find the best people for your part. Um, Make sure it's it's a hell of a script. Make sure you know what you're doing, uh, if at all possible in that realm and you'll you'll make the festivals and, and you'll get picked up and do well. So no, nothing beats story. Story is king and when you can show story in a beautiful way, uh you'll do really well. Nick, you have any other thoughts before we wrap that up? Uh no, I'll just say that on the um, from um feature film budget perspective,
1: you know, A24 kind of runs the gamut a bit on uh, what their films cost. I think some of their, you know, uh, the biggest budgets they might get into are just under $20 million. Uh, but some of their lower ones are between the, what, 2 to $5 million range. Um, so, and I think a lot of those are even, again, it's you're, you're paying for high quality everything, your cast and crew and so on. But I think they are, Definitely leveraging a lot of um, you know top build writers and top build cast to get up to even the three to five million dollar mark. So if you can imagine, if they're spending you know a good amount of money just to get that um, that cast in there, you know what is actually what is the production of the film actually cost? right right it's it's likely significantly lower than that so from in the in the indie world you know if you're looking at these well 824 is 10 million dollar films well yeah they do but not all of them are that i mean moonlight was 4 million dollars right mm-hmm. that's so the point is is that you know if you can get access to a name uh, or two names for your indie film that's likely where most of the money is going to go but the, what the cost of production is likely still well within um, the purview of the average independent filmmaker. So, right. you know, don't be discouraged by some of the budgets that other films have had. you know, they're, they're likely doing really good work uh, from a production standpoint uh, on, on a much lower budget than what is being
0: advertised. Fantastic point. And don't have the attitude of, I got to go get a name have the attitude of I've got to find a great actor yep. uh, and, and that'll be the best. And so uh, we'll wrap today on, on a somber note. I think uh, we lost two people uh, this week that uh, me and Nick both really enjoyed and, and are close to our hearts as independent creatives. So Lynn Shelton, independent director passed away this week at age 54 and uh, she's uh, had a breakout with the film hump day uh, went on to uh, make several more feature films in the indie space. Uh, your sister, sister sort of trust. Um, a, a recent note. She was a director of some of my favorite shows, uh, master of none, um, which is still one of my favorite shows with Aziz and sorry. um, little fires everywhere, which was great. Um, she did some of those episodes, the Mindy project, um, as she passed away. Um, uh, it was a surprise and then also Fred Willard who uh, was 86 he had a great life and he was in it felt like a thousand different things and yeah he um, was obviously working with Christopher Guest and and doing Best of Show uh those are Best of Show is is a is a underrated movie to watch with with uh Guest and France like it's almost like putting on the princess bride for me. It's like, let's watch best in show or it's like putting on Monty Python in a way. It's just, it's ridiculous and perfect and funny and um, really well done. Both of these guys will be missed rest in peace, Lynn Shelton and Fred Willard. And uh, with that, Nick, I think we've wrapped up another indie talk. This was fun, man.
1: Yeah, man, for sure. And uh, I think where we, where we love spending this time uh, where we do it all, basically it's like, Every day of every week, we're spending time, um, you know, listening to what's going on, reading, uh, digging into the resources that we think are great for independent filmmakers, uh, looking at what's in the news from the big box and uh, big company perspective. And again, bringing that back for indie filmmakers. So when we get to sit down and have these chats to kind of bring it all, uh, you know, in kind of one little consolidated conversation, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And we're really hoping that our audience gets a lot of value out of it. And, and of course doesn't just listen, but, you know, take some of the stuff to heart and, and you know, that, that each listener says, how can I now move forward? Right. If Nick and Chris are inviting me into that new dimension or to walk through that new door, you know am i willing to do that and if i if i'm willing to do that then what are the resources that i need to to make that happen so i think that's that's really what we want to do is you know be kind of the catalyst for the change in the independent filmmaking community to say hey look You can't just sit there anymore uh, looking for the unicorn film or hoping that that next feature film gets you somewhere. The industry is changing. Um, Society is changing. Viewership is changing. Content is changing. Everything is changing. So please keep a lookout for all of these changes and hopefully we can help you navigate some of them.
0: Fantastic. And with that, I'll uh, sign us off this week. Be better, be creative, be engaged, and we'll see you in two weeks. Another interview coming up on Tuesday uh, after this one rolls and then we'll be back. Nick, talk to you soon. Yeah, man. I appreciate you, dude. All right. Take care. All right, man. Peace. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already. You can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It, Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us. To schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment you have everything to gain until next time be better be creative be engaged and thank you for listening